Welcome to the Learn How to Homeschool seminar. We're so pleased that you can join us. My name is Pastor Carl Brogy, and my wife and I for 30 years have been doing this seminar for people who are contemplating home education. Many of you are listening to me, and you've been home educating by default, and that some 50 million children across America have been removed from the government school system. And so you've had to teach them at home. And for some, you're thinking maybe this is an option that we need to exercise as a family. So that's what we want to explore tonight. One, we're going to look at some motivations for homeschooling. And by the way, there's a handout that is available online at communitybiblechurch.us. If you go to communitybiblechurch.us slash live, you'll see a place for you to download the notes. And these notes will be very, very useful to you as you listen this evening. Uh, In addition, for those of you who pre-registered, it was not necessary. You had the opportunity to submit questions. And we received, oh, 50, 60 questions. They're still coming in. And uh, more than we can probably answer. But let me encourage you, many of the questions that you have asked have been asked in years past. And we hope to uh, cover those this evening in the presentation. And then at the end, you'll want to stay all the way through the seminar. We'll address the special issues that you have asked us about. Now, some who are listening are not necessarily Christians. And I understand that. And I would just encourage you to realize I'm coming from a Christian worldview. I start with the premise that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word. And so that flavors the way I think. But whether you're a Christian or not, I hope you will listen and uh, contemplate. I'd like to begin our time in prayer. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Our Holy Father, we thank you tonight uh, for this opportunity to meet. We thank you for the thousands of families across America no doubt in all 50 states and even in foreign countries who live stream with us, that you would work in a special way, that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of Scripture. We are so thankful to you for children and the great blessing that they are to us. And you've told us that uh, we are stewards over them. And so as many parents, many Christians, maybe some who are not yet Christians are contemplating This critical decision, we pray the Spirit of God would give them the help and the direction that he would speak to them. And I pray tonight that he would speak through me and that you would be honored and glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you printed out a handout uh, online at communitybiblechurch.us slash live, you can see where we're going tonight. We're going to start with the history of education in America And then we're going to talk about, uh, in Roman numeral two, a number of advantages to home education. We're going to address the legal situation for homeschooling. Uh, We're going to speak about how do you get started, where do I begin. 
And then we're going to take the scores of questions that you sent in. And my wife and I will, my, will, my wife will join me at that point and we'll try to answer those questions. So let's start with the history of education. Roman numeral one there in your handout. God through Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9 that there's nothing new under the sun. When the disciples emerged from Pentecost, uh, they came out as changed men. And they were both flabbergasted and threatened to see men preaching confidently who had not been to their approved schools. In fact, the threat apparently seems to continue because there are 50 million plus children right now who are being home educated by default. And many administrators, many educators across America are very threatened by that. And so the concern has been growing. Uh, as this virus has forced many children out of the public schools, most, uh, many are now for the first time contemplating, is this something that I can do? Is this something that I could be successful at? And I'm here to tell you tonight that generally, with rare exceptions, you indeed can be successful at home education. Currently, about 4% of school-aged children in the United States are home educated. Uh, and that's a number equivalent to those who are in the charter schools in America and slightly larger than those who are in religious schools. And again, this has people concerned. In the most recent May-June issue of Harvard Magazine, there's an article that just came out called The Risks of Homeschooling. And Elizabeth Bartholet, she's on the faculty of Harvard Law School, she begins her article with these words. A rapidly increasing number of American families are opting out of sending their children to school, choosing instead to educate them at home. Now, please know, uh, she writes this article ever before the COVID virus begins. But the timing to release it was really stellar on their part in light of some of the goals that they have. Um, and let me say, as she goes on, she expresses her concern about home education. Listen carefully to what she writes. Professor Bartholet writes, homeschooling not only violates children's rights to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse, but may also keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. We have an essentially unregulated regime, regime in the area of homeschooling. Bartholet writes, all 50 states have laws that make education at home, uh, make education compulsory. In addition, uh, all state constitutions ensure a right to education, and one of those in the legal regime is that of homeschooling. However, she continues to say that homeschooling is not governed very closely, that there are very few requirements that parents have to do, if anything. And so she says that means effectively that people can homeschool who have never gone to school themselves and who don't read or write themselves. Now, I'm sure her blood pressure has been rising with this whole COVID event, because there's already approximately 3 million children who are being home educated, and it grows by about 10% every year. But now, with all of these children forced to be educated at home, 
we've seen in a number of news reports across America, parents who are thinking this might be a viable option for us to continue. And so she is calling for a total and complete transformation of education in America. And she wants to, as you read her article, remove parental authority and choice concerning the education of your children at home. She wants to abolish home education, as she writes in her article, with a few rare exceptions, a few specialized cases where it might be absolutely necessary. And so what she does in this article, which, by the way, is a synopsis of a larger paper that she wrote in the Arizona Law Review. This Harvard Law professor wrote an 80-page paper in the Arizona Law Review uh, that details what she thinks about home education in America. But even in the short article, she creates a straw man of what it looks like. And so, for instance, here's a graphic. This is the original graphic when it came out in hard copy. You will notice uh, it shows a sad homeschooled child imprisoned in a house. All the other kids are outside playing and having fun. And please notice that the house is made out of books. And one of the books is actually the Bible. Now, that could be dangerous, I'm sure, in her thinking. And you'll also notice in the graphic that Harvard Magazine misspelled arithmetic. They wrote it arithmetic. Um, and, of course, uh, interestingly, I, when I saw that, I thought, well, maybe this is just kind of a spoof on the what she considers the ignorance of home educators. But they later uh, caught the error. And so here's a slide of the corrected graphic that is what you now find online. Um, and she spells arithmetic correctly. Now, remember, this is the woman, this Harvard Law School professor who said people can homeschool who've never gone to school themselves, who don't read or write themselves. Now, this month, in fact, two weeks from tonight, they were supposed to have a three-day conference at Harvard University. And they were inviting educators, legislators, and lobbyists from all across America to this conference. And online, uh, when they were promoting the conference before it was canceled, in describing it, these words were written. We will convene leaders in education and child welfare policy legislators and legislative staff, academics and policy advocates to discuss child rights in connection with homeschooling in the United States. The focus will be on problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment that too often occur under the guise of homeschooling in a legal environment of minimal or no oversight. Experts will lead conversations about the available empirical evidence the current regulatory environment, proposals for legal reform, and strategies for effecting such reform. There is no registration fee for this event. However, this event is private and by invitation only. If you are personally unable to attend but have a colleague, you recommend that we should invite. Please give us their name and contact information so that we can issue an invitation. Now, here's a picture of Professor Bartholet, and again, she opposes home education on the philosophical ground that it's dangerous for children. And again, she's creating a straw man, and I'm sure you could find some cases in America where maybe you had an abusive parent, but there are children 
that by the tens of thousands that come home every evening from private and public schools that are equally abused by their parents. But she, as she underscores in her Harvard Law School article, has some very, very subversive plans. Listen to what she writes in the Arizona Law Review, this 80-page paper, which you can find online. It's a really chilling thing to read. Because remember, this is no lightweight. This is a woman who's gathering lobbyists, legislators, and key educators from across America who are crafting the educational system for America, who want to eliminate home education, and I think ultimately Christian education in general. She writes in her 80-page paper, surveys of homeschoolers show that a majority of such families, by some estimates, up to 90%, are driven by conservative Christian beliefs and seek to remove their children from mainstream culture. Mm, I'd say that's true. Now, the next statement by the professor, I think, though, is key, arguing that some of these homeschool parents are, quote, extreme religious ideologues who question science and promote female subservience and white supremacy. Lie, 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 lie. Then she summarizes her opposition in saying, um, The absence of regulations ensuring that homeschooled children receive a meaningful education equivalent to that required in public schools is a threat to the United States democracy. So she thinks that home education is threatening the American experience. She argues that homeschoolers, quote, have become a powerful political force, and they have. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you uh, find out who many of the interns are, those who serve as pages in the various locales in our government, many of them are home educators. Why? Because they're leaders, they're confident, they're articulate, they can look at people in the eye, they can smile, they can think, and they're beginning to see the influence, and she argues that this is a threat to democracy itself. So, by way of introduction, just as the Sanhedrin was absolutely flabbergasted that none of the apostles had been to their approved schools, yet they spoke with a power and authority that they could not explain. Even so, there are many educators in America who are threatened by this movement. So I hope by now you've downloaded the outline, and I want to begin Roman numeral one with the history of education in America. Now, typically, in a more extended home education seminar, we spend a lot more time on this, but I have a reason for this. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, the 15th chapter. He says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, of course, the earlier times he's referring to is the Old Covenant. And he is simply reminding us that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, its instruction and the application found therein were written not just for the original audience, but for us as well. And so when Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he recounts Israel's history and a number of events and experiences that they had. And then he tells us that these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What I'm trying to say is that God establishes a principle in his word that there is much that we can learn from history. 
He exhorts us to go back and study the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures. And as we study them, the application and the instruction has great relevancy for us today. And it's a principle that's found in scripture. That when you study history, many times you can understand the setting that you may find yourself in today. So God often reminds us that um, people in the past are sometimes to be mimicked and sometimes their behavior is to be avoided. So when we think about Christian education, when we think about homeschooling, about home education, uh, it is considered somewhat radical today. But when you go back and you look at American history, you discover that it's not radical at all. In fact, virtually none of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had attended any kind of formal schooling. Most of them were educated at home. And so there's this mass movement out of the government school system into Christian schools and into home education. But have you ever wondered where it all began? What was America like in its early years, and how did we get to where we are today? And so what I want to do is show you and demonstrate from American history the slow cancerous growth that we have witnessed in the last 300 years. Here's a picture of Martin Luther, and Luther made this statement, the great Protestant reformer. I'm much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. Now, I think Martin Luther was right on track when he made that statement. And I hope to demonstrate this evening that that is the number one primary reason most home educators, because most home educators are made up of Christian evangelicals, certainly not exclusively. The movement has become more popular. But historically and still percentage-wise today, most are evangelical Christians. And the number one reason they choose to homeschool is to protect their children. So Professor Bartholet understands better than most evangelicals the significance of the statement that Martin Luther made that I just read when she writes this. She said, the issue is, do we think that parents should have 24-7 essential authority over their children from ages 0 to 18? I think that's dangerous, she says. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. Now, again, Luther's statement seems radical. And her statement is not radical to the minds of many people today because there are educators across America who want to capture the hearts and minds of your children to indoctrinate them with a worldview that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible in every respect. Dr. James Dobson, many of you know, some years ago in his broadcast, he said, in the state of California, if I had a child there, I would not put the youngster in a public school. I think it's time to get our kids out. Of course, Dr. Dobson is not the first to warn Christian parents about the dangers of the government school system. 
Here's a picture of Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, a pastor who uh, became the eighth president of Yale University. He served there from 1795 to 1817. And he said at the beginning of the public school movement, he penned these words. He said, to commit our children to the care of irreligious people is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. Now, we could use some more pastors who think that way today. As I will show you, there's a lot of pastoral neglect in our day where pastors are not protecting their sheep and encouraging those whom they are called to shepherd to really shape the hearts and minds and to protect the hearts and minds of the children that are in their congregations. So we've gone from, as I will show you, a home-controlled, Christian worldview-based education to a state-controlled educational system that is no longer God-centered, but is man-centered. And so I think if you can see how the whole movement began and where we've digressed, it will help you to see why some of these choices are so important today. So let me give you some key dates out of the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. 1620, the first date there in your outline, the start of education in America. In New England, under the colonies, um, under the state of Pennsylvania, where Penn, Governor William Penn was leading, they were the originators that every household should seek to educate their own children. Remember, when the Puritans and the pilgrims came here to America, it was during the great age of Bible translation and printing. And they wanted their children to be able to read the Word of God for themselves. And when those people first came to this country, they came so that they could practice with freedom their religious convictions without interference from the crown in England. And so most children in 1620, virtually all of them, were educated at home by their parents. In those situations where the parents were um, maybe not literate as they needed to be, then typically the most educated person in the community in the early days, namely the pastor, would teach them during the week. Uh, here's some photos of some uh, one-room schoolhouses, and the early one-room schoolhouses dubbed as schoolhouses and churches. And by the way, it's more than a cliche, the one-room schoolhouse. During the week, the children were educated, and on Sunday morning, it was a worship center. And there's a few of these still left in America. Most are in pretty uh, poor condition like this one that you're looking at. And so the one-room schoolhouse is the place where they received moral instruction. And the Puritans believed, as the pilgrims did, that the scriptures must be taught because they believed that man was not basically good, but that man was depraved and fallen and therefore needed biblical instruction because we're prone to evil. So for them, the Bible was an integral part of the educational system because they wanted to reach their children for Christ. The second date there in your outline is 1636, which marks the founding of Harvard University. Uh, John Harvard, as you see a picture here of him, was a pastor and he recognized that only a handful of 
um, pastors from the old world would come to the new world. And so he was burdened to start a Christian college that could train missionaries and pastors in the gospel. And so in the early years, the principal reason for Harvard College was the training of pastors and missionaries. And if you've been there, then you've seen a plaque that commemorates the original gateposts of the university that the words were imprinted to train illiterate clergy, to train illiterate clergy. And so uh, for the 17th century, about 50% of Harvard graduates became pastors or missionaries. In fact, for the first 100 years, 106 of the first 108 colleges and universities that were started were started by a church or denomination. Here's the original Harvard School seal. And if you can make out those words, Veritas, Truth for Christ and the Church. That was the original seal. It had a Christian emphasis on it. Some years back, of course, they changed the seal, and here is a more recent one where it simply says Veritas, Truth, Harvard, but the whole idea of truth for Christ and for the ecclesia, the church, is now omitted. But they shared a common goal, the early schools in this nation, to make sure that men and women had a Christ-centered education and to provide a place for people to be trained in the Scriptures. 1647, another key date, we call the Old Deluder Act, passed by Massachusetts Bay Colony. And again, I'm just trying to share our common Christian roots in education. And what this particular act of 1647 declared is that every town that had at least 50 households needed to maintain a teacher who could teach the children to read and write. Attendance was not mandatory, it was optional. But it was with the intention, and I quote, to thwart ye old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of ye scriptures. In other words, they wanted these schools so that children could learn the Bible and not fall to the wiles of the evil one. Similar acts were adopted in other New England colonies. And again, the principal reason was not the reason we send children to today, um, and understand at this point there's no public education in America. Any kind of formalized education in some way, sense, or form is church-run. And the next key date here on your outline is 1776, uh, the year our country is founded officially, the birthday of our nation. And at this point, public schools are nearly extinct. On our nation's birthday, there was only one public school in all America, and it was in the city of Boston. And it was run um, by what they called dames. They typically referred to these as dame schools. And these were usually women, occasionally men, who taught these schools as they began to surface. They didn't call them public schools back then. They called them common schools. And they're usually held, again, either in a church or in a home, um, but they are with a Christian base. John Adams, here's a picture, a photograph of John Adams. According to him, he said uh, when Americans came to our country that visitors would comment, to quote Adams, they have never seen so much knowledge and civility among the common people in any part of the world. In addition, Adams wrote, a Native American who cannot read or write is, a, is as rare an appearance as a comet or an earthquake. 
All right, let's move um, into the 19th century, 1818. The first year on your outline, the public primary school system begins. This year marks a complete reversal of the forces of the free market of education where the Boston Unitarians uh, begin to push for what they called public primary education. Thirteen years earlier, in 1805, Harvard was taken over by the Unitarians. At this point, Unitarians are stark liberals. Uh, we have Unitarians today, Unitarian Universalists. They're not Christians by any stretch of the imagination. But the early Unitarians were certainly not as liberal as they are today. But one of the fundamental doctrines, uni, one, is they denied the doctrine of the Trinity. But Unitarians, basic to their heretical teachings, was that man was not basically fallen and depraved, but man was basically good. And that education did not need to be centered on moral training, but just on the elimination of ignorance and poverty and crime. And Unitarians believed that the younger you could get a child, the more moldable they would be to shape them in a worldview that they believed was correct and right. And so while their goals were set, their influence at this point is still very slow, very, very gradual. In fact, in 1836, where there are a handful of um, schools like this, the primary reader that they used was by a uh, college prof and president named William Holmes McGuffey. Here's a picture of William Holmes McGuffey. And so during the 19th century, the first grader did not read like I did on the words see Jane run or jump spot jump. But uh, they used this reader pictured here, the McGuffey reader. And the first grader, for instance, would read God made the world and all the things in it. So while the evangelical influence is beginning to erode, Still, most educators believe that the moral character and training of the young was absolutely essential to a morally sane and safe society. Uh, there was a book published in 1835. Two pastors, two British Congregationalists, traveled from England. Their names were Andrew Reed and Jay Matheson to visit some of the sister congregational churches in America. At that point, congregational churches were conservative. We have people live streaming with us uh, tonight, I'm sure, in New England because a number of questions have come from that source. Very few congregational churches left in New England today are conservative and Bible-believing. But the congregationalists came from the pilgrims, it became the standing order, and at one point it was a solid evangelical denomination. But Reed wrote a book called A Narrative of the, Vi of the Visit to American Churches, and in that he penned these words, America will be great if America is good. If not, her greatness will vanish away like a morning cloud. In other words, he understood that the greatness and the blessing on America was the goodness in America that came from a Christ-centered, biblio-centered education. 1837, public education, next date, public education spreads through a man by the name of Horace Mann. Horace Mann in 1837 was appointed to be the first uh, Secretary of Education in the state of Massachusetts. And he uses his position 
to um, promote public education across America. Here's a picture. Here's what he looked like. Up until now, understand, up until 1837, in some way, shape, or form, 99.98% of all schools in America are public, I mean, are privately run. Uh, there's really virtually no public education until Horace Mann steps to the forefront. He's a humanist. He has a different way of thinking about life. And he recognized that if we can train children through a government school where his humanistic values could be taught, that we could reshape the way people think in America. He encouraged many of the leading educators to go to Europe to come back with their PhDs and back with those doctorates. They brought the skepticism and existentialism and rationalism that Europe was known for at this point. It was during this time that he starts the very first teacher's college in Lexington, Massachusetts, where teachers who would serve in a public school would come and be formally trained in his worldview. 1849, uh, again, another key date in American education. For the first time, Protestants formally support public schools. And I think it's important to understand that initially most evangelical Christians were fearful of the federal government being involved in our school system. Again, what they called at that point common schools. And they were going back and forth as to how involved they should be in the whole government school system as it began to develop. And so the Protestant General Assembly of Massachusetts, as it was called then, recorded these words in their minutes in 1849. Listen to what they said. They said, it is a great evil to withdraw from the established system of common schools, the influence and the interests of the religious part of the community. They said, if after a full and faithful experiment, it should at last be seen that the fidelity to the religious interests of our children forbids further patronage of the system, then we can unite with evangelical Christians in the establishment of private schools in which fuller doctrinal and religious instruction may be possible. Now, this is a landmark decision that they make in Massachusetts. And the way of thinking is multiplied in both the north and the south and a number of states. And a digression just begins to accelerate. And so by 1870, Protestant schools are virtually wiped off the map. They no longer exist. With the exception of one Lutheran school in the state of Missouri, they have all been shut down and closed. And so the Protestants decided we needed to be salt and light in the public school system. And as they wrote, if somehow this experiment fails, then we will withdraw from that system and we'll go back to the way we had done it before. Now, I want you to hold that thought because that's the way a lot of Christians are thinking, how do I know? Because you wrote me questions. Aren't we supposed to be salt and light in the government school system to make an influence, to change these people? So I want you to hold that thought. We're coming back to it. By 1900, there are 700,000 students in United States high schools. That's the next key date. At the start of the 20th century, the American government school system was now firmly rooted. Understand, in 1860... There's 69 public high schools in America. 
in 2020, there are 26,407 public high schools in America, excluding the religious and private ones. Over 50 states, that's about 528 public high schools per state. So we've gone from a handful to it being the norm. So remember, when we're talking about home education and Christian education, where we are today is radically different from where we are in our roots. Here's a picture of John Dewey. Uh, John Dewey is dubbed the father of progressive education. He joins the faculty at Columbia University, and he is one of the founders and the board members of the American Humanist Association, and he places his signature on what's known as the Humanist Manifesto in 1933. Now, one of Dewey's principles for developing the um, public school system in America was to replace Christian theism with what he called a common faith. And he thought that the best way to do this was to target children when they were young, and the longer uh, you had influence over their lives, then you could begin to shape the way that they thought. And so he did more to plant seeds and policies for the secularization of education in America than any single person in American history. Dewey believed that a person's faith needed to be in science and in the evolutionary theory. He believed that the religious and traditional values of Christianity was a deterrent to the development of a child, and he believed that socialism should replace capitalism. And again, he was one of 33 men that signed the Humanist Manifesto. There were 15 points to it. It's an interesting read. Take all the air out of the balloon. They basically said this. Truth is relative. There are no absolutes. The evolutionary model is true. There is no God and there is no soul. Dewey was the first honorary president of the NEA, the National Education Association. And to this day, most of the leaders in the NEA continue to embrace his ideals. His strategy was well thought out. He wrote these words. He said, change must come gradually. To force it unduly would compromise its final success by favoring a violent reaction. In other words, he says, we just need to go slow because if you try to initiate these policies too fast, people will get angry, they will resist, but we'll just take it very slow. And he was patient. Now, one of his best friends was a man by the name of Charles Potter. Here's a picture of him. He, too, was a Unitarian. I wish I could get a better picture of him. That's the best I've ever been able to find in 30 years. If someone has a better picture, please send it to me. Uh, he's a Unitarian minister. He is the founder of the Euthanasia Society of America. Again, one of the original signers of the Humanist Manifesto. And he spelled out explicitly what few Americans were willing to see. In his 1930 book entitled Humanism, A New Religion, he said this, Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school is a school of humanism. 
What can theistic Sunday school, meeting for an hour once a week, and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teachings? And of course, the answer to his rhetorical question was, practically nothing. And humanists understood this. And again, this is very important because the NEA is a major controlling force behind what is happening in American education today. The professor that I quoted from Harvard University and all these educators that she's bringing in from across the country, along with lobbyists and legislators. These are people who value and espouse the teachings of the National Education Association. Now, John Dewey dies in 1952. He didn't quite live long enough to see a dream that he had worked so hard for. And so the next key date is 1957. It's the first time in America that federal aid comes to education. Federal aid comes to education. Up until this time, 100% of all the funding in America for the public school system came from the state level. But he understood something Dewey did. That if you can control things from the top down, then you can have a much broader influence. And so this allowed the NEA, as they made states more and more and more dependent on federal funds, to become like a national school board where they could control what they want to see happen in education. Listen, there are legislators right now, senators and those congressmen, who want to pass the Equality Act. And if they get into power and they have a president who will sign it, it will be the single most heinous, evil piece of legislation that has ever reached American history. It will do more against home education, Christian education, and all that is involved because of the standards that they are going to require. They want your children. They want to snatch your children. They want to change the way your children think. And so in 1956, I, I'm talking about control from the top down. In 1956, there are 26,000 local school boards in America. Today, there's about 1,800. But they're not needed. Because the decision-making process has moved to a federal level, we have, in essence, a national school board. And so if you are like most Americans, sending your child to a government school, people think it's a blessing. You know, there was a time when children began formal education in our public schools at seven. Then it went to six. Then it went to five. In some states, they already have K-4. And then there are people who want to make mandatory K-3 education across America. And for some people, this is a blessing. Well, I don't have to pay child care anymore. Just drop them off at the school. In fact, they'll give them breakfast. They'll give them lunch. They'll give them a laptop. What more could we ask for? But they'll also give your children a humanistic worldview. And the states have become so dependent on federal money like crack cocaine they're willing to bend and to adjust to what the federal government wants to do. Now, the next two dates are very important that I have highlighted on your outline. 1962, 1963, prayer and Bible reading is outlawed from public schools. 
The U.S. Supreme Court issued two bans, one on prayer. The first came in 62, the second in 63, via a lawsuit filed by Madeleine Murray O'Hare. She cites her son as the plaintiff, though interestingly in 1980, William Murray, her son, who was just a lad at the time, came to faith in Christ, in which time her mother penned these words. One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. When I was a new staff member uh, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that woman came to the campus. And I went to listen to her to a packed auditorium. If you could hear a man of God speak with the power and the anointing of the Spirit on him, you could hear her speak with the power and the anointing of the devil. In fact, I've never in my life since that time, ever or before, heard a woman who spoke with such demonic power as she spoke. Today, her son, William Murray, here's a picture of him. He's the president of the Religious Freedom Coalition in Washington, D.C., whose goal is to protect and to defend the rights of Christians around the world. You know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so um, God has used him in a great way. So think about where we've been. The American founding fathers believed that it was self-evident truth that God had created us, that he had endowed us with certain inalienable rights. And so we've gone from the Articles of Confederation of the United Colonies that in 1643 stated these sentiments of Americans. We all came into these parts, they wrote, of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity with peace. We've gone from that to another statement written in 1856 by the U.S. United States House of Representatives, which represents the people more directly and broadly. And they pen these words, the great vital and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've gone from a Supreme Court that in 1892, in the case called Holy Trinity versus the United States, they said that America, quote, is a Christian nation. We've gone from that into the muck and the slime and the immorality that is now prevalent across America. 1965, next key date, the Christian school movement is launched. Thousands of Christian schools were launched to combat the humanistic and secularistic approach that was now filling education. The vacuum was being filled with a different worldview. And so um, Protestant Christian schools, and by Christian schools, usually that term is used exclusively of Protestant denominations and not of Catholic parochial schools, simply because of the way we define Christian, the way we define the gospel by the five solas on the stained glass window behind me versus the way the Roman Catholic Church would define it. In either case, some of these schools, with time and were large, they're well-funded, some are very small, some rely on volunteers, um, some have a lot of money, some have a lot of programs, some have very little money, but there's about 15,000 now Christian evangelical schools in America. 
1975, next date on your calendar, it marks the rebirth of the home education movement in America. It began to grow in the 1970s, largely through the influence of John Holt and Raymond and Dorothy Moore, who started writing about educational reform. And they suggested that parents need to take control of the education of their children. And in one sense, the whole homeschool movement was reborn. 2020, the next date on your calendar, um, now we see homeschooling that is spread across America. The growth has been absolutely phenomenal. And there's approximately now 3 million children before the COVID virus where their parents chose to home educate, and it's grown at a rate of about 10% a year. It's legal in all 50 states. Uh, families choose to homeschool primarily because they're dissatisfied with other educational options. And the dissatisfactions that they typically have is the fact that their religious convictions are being replaced with an anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible world view. So I took the time, a few minutes, to review this section because I want you to see where we've come from. Because the home educate is not radical. In some ways, it's just going back to our roots. But if you don't really see where we've come from, one, you might never start. If you don't really know what's going on in the public school system, most people think, oh, well, you know, the home school, you know, the public education was good for me. Public education, even if you're 30, is not what it is today. And I can promise you it's not what it is when I was a child. I'm talking about public education. It's not what it used to be. It is very, very different. So I have, you know, some parents coming to me from the Bluffton school system because of the transgenderism that's being taught. At least some of those parents had the opportunity to opt out, but there's coming a time, as in many states right now, where you cannot opt out of some of the instruction that is being offered. And so if you don't know where we've come from, you might and don't really know the current state. You might never choose to leave it. And two, if you get discouraged, you might go back to it. So let's talk about the advantages of homeschooling. I can name 15, but I'm only going to name five tonight. So we'll just look at five advantages to home education. The number one chief reason that most evangelicals choose to get out of the government school system is that you can give your children added protection from the world. That's the first reason, the primary reason. Why did you choose to homeschool? Because of what my children were being taught that go against everything I stand for. The Apostle Paul penned this in the book of Romans, chapter 16. He said, For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but... I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. He said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, if you read both of those verses contextually, you will discover that the bad company that he is referring to, the evil that we are to be innocent of, concerns false teaching teaching that is contrary to the scripture. Now, it is certainly a legitimate application 
to say that, hey, listen, I don't want my children to hang around with another child that's deeply entrenched in evil without my supervision because I don't want that child to influence my child. But understand, there's something behind behavior. And what's behind every behavior is the way we think. And the thinking that we have is either true and accurate and reflective of what God has said in his word, or it's bad company, it's evil, it's contrary to what God has called us to set our mind on today. And so with God gone and his values gone out of the government school system, the things that are happening are absolutely horrendous. And listen, even, even if you had a public school teacher who is a born-again Christian, and by the way, there are good born-again people. We have people in our congregation of some 2,000 members who are, some who are teachers in the government school system, some who have been principals, assistant principals, administrators. And what I always find interesting is most of them always homeschool their kids, but lay that aside. You know, they're trying to have an influence sometimes. They're trying to be salt and light. You say, well, I want my child to be salt and light. You think your child is going to be salt and light in a public school system? Look at even a lot of teachers and administrators have to walk on eggshells. Your child, when they're in the developmental years, will not be a missionary to the public school system. They'll be a mission field. Their minds and the way they think will be changed, and you won't like what's happening. I mean, think about it. Even, even, even if all of your children's teachers were born-again believers, the exposure they have to children who are being raised in homes that are thoroughly pagan. I mean, you see these parents, even in our own state, who are lauding the reading of children's stories by men who dress up as women and women who dress up as men. That's a depraved, reprobate, upside-down mind. Yet that's the way many of these parents think. And that's the kind of exposure your child will get. And so we're watching a world that is being given over to a depraved mind. We are seeing Romans chapter 1 lived out. What did we do? We reviewed it. In the 60s and 70s, we said, no, God. We don't want God. They refused to give God praise or thanks, Paul writes in Romans 1. We don't want him in our schools. We're going to teach evolution, that man came from monkeys, that we're not a direct creation of God. We don't want prayer. We don't want Bible reading. So God begins to lift his hand up and you see sensuality take over. That was the 70s and 80s and 90s. Did we repent of our wickedness? No. And so God lifts his hand further. And what's the next stage of God giving a nation over? It's homosexuality. Look, I think I was either 12 or 13. I had to ask my parents what a homosexual was. Because I didn't have a clue. That's how radically different this world is. And the third stage, and we've not repented, we are endorsing, we are celebrating depravity, then God gives us over to a depraved mind. And we look at the violence in our street this week across America, it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. 
It's a nation that has forsaken God, and no amount of legislation can change the human heart. So a survey that was done in the 1940s said, here are some of the top offenses in schools. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, running in the halls, making noise, not putting paper in the wastebaskets, getting out of turn in line. Kind of sounded like what it was when I was a young child in the government school system. What are the top offenses today? Rape, robbery, assault, personal theft, drug abuse, arson, bombings, alcohol abuse, the carrying of weapons, absenteeism, vandalism, murder, extortion, gang warfare, pregnancies, abortion, suicide, STDs, lying and cheating, bullying, and gender dysphoria. Now, please understand that home education can protect your children from some of these evils in their formative years before Daniel and his three friends could ever take a stance for God in pagan Babylon, God had to build some spiritual steel into their lives. And you take that opportunity away from your children when you give them to wolves. Now understand, I'm not saying that Christian education or home education is some magic bullet. In fact, the challenge in a lot of the Christian schools, there are are two types. There's what we call an open enrollment and a closed enrollment. And an open enrollment Christian school says anyone can come. We'll take anybody. So you've got children who are coming from the public school system where they've just had trouble after trouble after trouble, basically been thrown out, expelled. And so they end up at the Christian school. And I'm not dismissing those schools and the potential ministry they can have. But understand, in a lot of these Christian schools, they're not what you think they are. And the socialization is so negative. You send your child to that school, and instead of going up towards Christ, they're going down. And then you have closed enrollment that says at least one child, uh, at least one parent of a child has to be a born-again church-attending Christian. Though even these schools that I hear of with closed enrollment, and I meet some of the people who go there, and, oh, you go to that church. Oh, I see. That church doesn't even believe in the resurrection. Hmm. Oh, that church believes uh, that the Bible is fallible and it's filled with mistakes. Hmm. That church is doing gay marriages. Hmm. And how they define evangelical is very, very different. Look, I've had parents weeping and crying in my office in the 30 years that I've been the pastor here who sacrificed to send their children to a Christian school, and instead of being brought up, they were brought down. Now, I'm not dismissing Christian education. It has its purposes. And let me just say parenthetically, homeschooling is no magic bullet either. Because if you have parents who are trafficking in filth, remember, bad company corrupts good morals. And they're in questionable Internet sites. And the movies that they're watching is filled with sensuality and violence. And they're entertaining themselves on things that God calls evil. Then you will not be able to protect your children. And so not every homeschooler turns out, but all things being equal, if you have a dad or a mom that's walking with the Lord, the potential. Look, your kids are going to get exposure to the world. You just walk down the street. 
Yeah, you were in New York City a few months ago and walking down the street and they look like ice cream trucks, but they're selling pot as candy. You got your kids in all these different environments and you're going to have plenty of opportunity to say what God teaches. So, number one, you can protect your kids. Number two, you can provide your children with a tutorial educational model. In a class of, say, 20 to 30 students, not all the students, of course, can receive the attention and assistance needed from a single teacher. And it's a rare opportunity very often when a teacher can focus on one child in the classroom. They love it when they can, but it's very difficult to do. Where when you home educate, the individualized, personalized attention that you can give, well, you're able to do it. You can't do that in a typical government school or even a Christian school. And it also allows you to free your child up to excel. One of the questions that came through is, well, I have a gifted child. Will I be holding my child back if I home educate? No, you'll be doing just the opposite. You'll be freeing them up. You'll be loosing them to really excel with their gifts and their abilities. Why? Because if you're a teacher and some of you are listening to me who are professional teachers and you're teaching a herd of 20 or 30 students, You've got to work with the whole group. Some can complete the material very fast, some slow, and you've got to time it for the whole classroom. Whereas when you're home educating, if you have a student who's a little slow, you can give them the time they need until they perfect the skill. Ever before they're labeled by some school system, or they have this problem, or they have that problem. They have ADD or ADHD or... Look, nobody had ADD or ADHD when I was a kid. Nobody. Did it exist? Well, you know, when our kids would get hyperactive, my wife would say, 20 laps around the house. And they'd go and they'd get that energy out. Not to mention these kids are doing this all day long with these computer games. And look, um, kids are labeled. Kids are shaped in a wrong way. Where When you have... Uh, this kind of curriculum, you can really shape it to the needs of your child according to what they're doing. Now, we always encourage people when they first start to home educate, especially if they've been in the government school system, to evaluate where their child is. In many curriculums for English or math, there's an initial test to find out what they're actually doing. And you might uh, be discouraged, but don't be discouraged. You may think, well, my child's in the fifth grade, and when he took the math exam, they rated him in the third grade. Well, then you start where he's at, and you'll be able to help him. You might find that he's ahead. And so you can really allow the child to excel as they are Evaluated. My wife and I tried to help one family many, many years ago, I suppose 25 years ago, and the dear girl was just put through grade after grade after grade after grade after grade, and I think she was in eighth or ninth grade when my wife was trying to help her, and she read on about a first grade level. Now, I wonder if she was such a problem child in the school system. She was so embarrassed over her own ignorance. And she just needed some individualized attention. A fourth advantage is you can provide your children with a flexible environment for learning. Look, the average uh, government school is eight hours long, 40 hours a week. Uh, many of the students are not motivated. 
Um, they sit at a desk that's uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of public school s- teachers, they're so frustrated. What's your number one frustration? I spend half my time disciplining the kids. Why? Because the whole society is breaking down. The family is breaking down. When you don't have a dad and the mom in the, in the home and a, and a dad who leads the home where, and a mother who honors and submits to his leadership, that's the smallest microcosm of life where a child's supposed to learn to respect the teacher at school, the police officer in the street, wherever it might be. But the whole society is breaking down. And so they're dealing with these unruly students. But you can provide an environment that really will enhance learning. And uh, really, most states, it's about four and a half hours a day of formal teaching. And you can do it in a way where, look, they just begin to love to learn. Where they don't shut down, oh, it's the end of a school day, and a lot of kids have to come home, and then they still have homework. And when you get a scope and sequence, and there's one for every grade that basically says, here's what your first grader needs to know. Here's what your third grader, here's what your sixth grader needs to know. Many home educators discovered that by February or March, they've done everything in the scope and sequence that it will take the public school system to June to accomplish. Why? Because they're not dealing with all of the rigmarole that the public school teacher has to fight over. Not to mention, you've got a lot of flexibility. You know, you say, well, we want to go on vacation in February. You can do it. We want to go visit grandma. You can homeschool at grandma's table if you choose. A lot of flexibility. Fifth advantage, you can provide your children with an environment for character growth. For character growth. Listen to what God said in the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for here. So we call it the Shema. Every synagogue across the world, every Sabbath reads this. Hear, O Israel. Jesus, by the way, called this the greatest of all the commandments. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, you can much more effectively carry out this commandment when you are with your children. But when, again, they're in a public school environment... They tend to become subjects of groupthink and peer pressure before spiritual steel is put into their spiritual spines. And God reminds us in Proverbs 13 and verse 20, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so students often find themselves in the midst of a a social hierarchy of sorts, that's godless, that's foolish. And unless you respond to the pressure, you begin to think less of yourself. And it's very, very sad what is happening across America. Now, people say, but my children need socialization. Of course they do. And the first people they should socialize with are the parents who in that birthing room held them for the first time. That's by God's design. And as they grow and they nurture, God's design is that you have them there in your home. And they are with you. They're going to be socialized. Even if you live in Montana and your neighbor is two miles away, you're going to be socialized first with your own family, which is healthy. 
But I mean, if you go to the grocery store or the library or to church, your kids are going to get socialization. That's not the issue. The issue is what kind of socialization are they going to get? All right, quickly now, let's go to the legality of homeschooling. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that parents have a fundamental right to educate their children. And it came especially through some rulings with the Amish some years back. So homeschooling is legal in all 50 states. Um, so just generally, you have to submit to the laws where you are physically living. So let's say you're in the military, an active member of the military, and your license plates say that you live in California, but you're living at Marine Corps Air Station, South Carolina. You have to fall under the place where you are physically living. That's what the law says. Now, you want to understand what the law says? Here's a, a picture here. If you go to HSLDA, HSLDA stands for Homeschool Legal Defense Association. HSLDA.org. And uh, when you go to the home page, you can click on an icon, the legality, and it will show all 50 states, and then you click on your state. Now, assuming you were homeschooled, you'd be able to find out where your state is. I hope you know where it is. But you can see as this is color-coded, um, it goes from no notice required at all, which is states like Texas, to a low regulation, which would be like a state like Georgia, to a moderate regulation that would be a state like South Carolina, to the highest of regulation that would be a state like um, oh, uh, Louisiana. So you've got all kinds of um, different laws that apply to the state. But when you, again, take all the air out of the balloon, generally speaking, and I'll just hit it generally because we have people potentially live streaming from all 50 states tonight, you will find there are three options. Option number one is you can be a public homeschool. That is, you can homeschool under the homeschool statute of your state. And under this particular option, uh, you're considered a public homeschool. In South Carolina, for instance, it says that parents may teach their children um, if approved by the district board of trustees. And it also says in the statute that the board must approve you if you meet the requirements. And so there are certain subjects in most states that you have to teach. You have to maintain some records that show that you are actually uh, doing that teaching. In most states, you have to submit, if you're a public homeschool, at least a semi-annual progress report. Uh, you have to ensure uh, your state that your child has access to the public library facilities, and you have to have your child tested annually. So um, in some states where the regulation is more intense, if your child doesn't test well, then they can in those few states, and there's only a handful of them, ask you to stop homeschooling and to put your child in either a private school, be it Christian or secular, or back in the public school. Again, most parents, I would say, choose not to be a public homeschool. They choose not to exercise option number one for the simple reason that they don't want any state interference at all. Now, the government obviously has the interests of the culture in mind. Typically, because of where we are at this point in our history, if a child is truant and uneducated, he's a cost to the society. 
And so their interest is that your child be educated. The second option is you join, like in this state, option two, some public homeschool association. So, for instance, in the state of, uh, or excuse me, private homeschool association. So in South Carolina, we have one. It's called the South Carolina Association of Independent Homeschools. And uh, they have the same requirements that a public homeschooler would have. You have to educate 180 days a year in most states, four and a half hours a day. Um, some of these organizations, like SCASE, has a cost involved. So they have a cost of $350 a year for your first child and then $50 additional for each child up to the third child and beyond that there's no fee. And then some have some fees for high school students for diplomas and so forth. But if you're in South Carolina and many who are live streaming with us, you could go to www.schomeschooling.com. But in the state you're in, when you click on the HSLDA map, it will show you if you have a similar organization. But virtually all 50 states have what we call option three, and it's a private homeschool association, a private homeschool association. Uh, so in most states, at least in South Carolina, for instance, to form a private homeschool association where it's considered a legal alternative, there has to be at least 50 member families, not 50 children, but 50 member families. And we have one for our church that is not only private, but it's religiously based. We wanted a double tier of protection. In fact, Community Bible Church Christian Academy was the very first religiously based homeschool uh, private association in America. There had never been one before. We dialogued with HSLDA, uh, which, by the way, is a great organization to join, if, uh, especially if the climate becomes more negative towards home education, because they will defend you. It's kind of like legal insurance. So if someone questions your right to homeschool, you don't have to hire a lawyer. They pay for all your court and legal fees. It's a great organization. There's not a better one in the whole country that has a focus exclusively for home education. So basically, three options, public homeschool uh, groups, some statewide association or private homeschool group. And there are a hundred of hundreds of private homeschool groups that are regulated according to the state. In the state of South Carolina, 50 minimum families to have one. So, for instance, we formed uh, almost 30 years ago a Community Bible Church Christian Academy. And uh, we saw students, you know, start in kindergarten and they went all the way through high school. And when they graduate, they get a diploma that says Community Bible Church Christian Academy. They are privileged to all the scholarships and uh, that most states offer, as the state of South Carolina offers to them in the same way they'd have to offer to a public or a private school student as long as they meet certain SAT scores and so forth, ranking and, and so forth. So there are things like this that are a great blessing. How do you get started? So let's go to Roman numeral four and then we're going to go to questions. It's as simple as ABC, all right? Number one, find out what the laws are in your state. Investigate the laws of your state. Number two, you have to choose a curriculum. So to help you in that, I'm not going to endorse a particular curriculum tonight, but what you might want to do is get together with some veteran homeschoolers. 
So you can find out in whatever state you are where the various homeschool associations might be. And if you, say, are deciding to homeschool next year and you have a first grader and a third grader, you'd want to find a homeschooler that has already done those grades. And they can kind of mentor you through that. We do that for those who are members of our homeschool association. But homeschoolers like to help each other, and you'll find them very congenial. And then third, simply... Commit your way to the Lord and get started. Commit your way to the Lord. He will help you. Now, I want my wife to come up, and before we take scores of these questions, and a lot of them we've answered, I want her to come and maybe just share a little something, because she's really the genius behind this whole thing, and um, she has much to say. Go ahead, on. Um, this is my wife, Audrey, by the way. We've been married 40 years this almost. month. Almost. Almost. <laughs> Back in the 80s, um, Homestyle Teaching was the very first book I read on homeschooling. It was written by Raymond and Dorothy Moore. It's out of print now, but you can still find it on eBay. You can find it in different um, places. But it literally changed the way I thought about education. And it gave me the courage and the confidence to set forth on this journey, this adventure of educating our children. Now, I was a product of public education all the way through college, but after After reading that book and having some concerns over our first uh, child's kindergarten experience, we just decided together that we were going to home educate and we never looked back. And did I doubt myself at times? Absolutely. (laughs) But all these years later, and I can't believe it's all these years later, after having worked myself out of my home education job, I fully realized my inadequacies. I probably realized them more than anyone does. Things I could have done better, areas I missed with my children, or times I simply got tired. However, I'm proof positive that any ordinary mother who sets her mind to love her children unconditionally, provide the opportunities that they need, guide them through life, take their questions seriously and answer those questions or find the answer to those questions. Moms who make uh, every day a learning experience and then, of course, follow a good scope and sequence for every grade level. Again, I'm proof positive that it can be done. One of the main things all these years that I stake my life on was that God would lead us one step at a time. And my heart's desire has always been that each of our children would be an asset and a blessing in the world. As they were growing up, yes, of course, but especially once they reached adulthood, always looking forward to the fact that I would work myself out of a job and they would be adults in this world. And by God's grace, I can say that they, each one of them, They all are blessings in this world. Now, I certainly didn't understand, nor did I know everything, but I knew the Lord, and I knew he would help me as we opened up the world to our children. And during those years, I became a student of my children in ways that they didn't even understand and probably didn't even know. And I pushed them. There were times, of course, when they felt that push, and other times they didn't. And also, no one knows better than I that there were gaps in their education. But, of course, that's true in any kind of education. Now, I usually don't brag about the accomplishments of my children, but after reading that damning article that my husband mentioned at the beginning of this evening when I saw it uh, earlier in the a couple months ago, 
I say this about it. <laughs> the article is sheer lunacy. Because I'm a mom who homeschooled all five of my children, four boys and one girl. All five of them went to college and graduated with the highest honors. One went to Harvard Law and is a practicing attorney. He and his wife homeschool their children. One went to Harvard Business, and he is now a VP in one of the largest corporations in America. And they've homeschooled their children. And then um, my our daughter, who's in the middle of all these boys, she finished college with an education degree, and she's married to a man who's finishing his doctorate, and she uses her education degree to homeschool her children. Our son, we have a son who's, who's a marine captain and a small business owner. And our youngest just graduated from the Scalia Law School in Virginia. So the only risk I ever faced was this kind of misinformed prejudice and bias that this article wants, that, that this article talks about. Now my children and their spouses are smarter than I will ever be. And I always wanted them to be smarter than I would ever be. And they've made me very proud because I'm on the other side of it now. But one final thought before we take questions is, sure, there are risks with homeschooling. But there are risks in all of life. Anything worth doing has risk. And sure, there are plenty of homeschool fails out there. But I can attest that God was faithful to our family. He is still faithful to our family. And he will be faithful to every single generation, no matter how dark the times are. Now, our family, we're not special, but God is special. So with that, let's go. All right. Tons of questions. So this is a lady named Summer from Jacksonville, North Carolina. She said, this has been my first year of home educating and I've really enjoyed it. However, I'm having a lot of difficulties making a schedule and sticking to it. I'm a natural procrastinator, and I wonder if my kids would be better off back at school because it's so hard for me to be motivated. I don't want to send them back, but I would love some guidance on how to get my procrastination in line with homeschooling. Well, it might be that um, homeschooling is the very thing that will help you with that because I know for me it's not about procrastination, but I didn't see myself as very organized. But because I took on the uh, task of homeschooling, it forced me into that. So the issue is not so much, oh, I'm a pro procrastinator so therefore I shouldn't homeschool no you need to get that area of your life under control and ask the Lord to help you with it and then as you do that then as you take on the responsibility of homeschooling your children and you ask the Lord for his guidance then that's an area in your life that God will use to get you where you need to be yeah parents mature very often as much when they home educate as their children do and if they're procrastinators or lazy, they need to get it organized. Sometimes people say, well, my kids don't listen to me. How can I home educate them? That's not a homeschooling problem. That's a parental problem. It's a discipline issue. And learning to train them rightly is important. You might want to take Biblical Parenting 101 and 102, where I cover a lot of these issues. Let me take the next one. Why are public schools bad for our children? Well, I think I... Covered, covered that. <laughs> yeah. And then the second half of his question is, how can my church be involved in supporting homeschool parents? Well, hopefully they will encourage them. And there's a similar question that comes a little bit later, which is, how do I get my pastor to be supportive of home educators? Well, some pastors aren't supportive of home educators for several reasons. Number one, sometimes they're not faithful. 
Uh, they're not really engaged and involved in the church. In fact, sometimes they're divisive and critical. Uh, and that's sad when they have that spirit. And occasionally uh, you'll meet homeschoolers who say, well, we don't go to church. We do home church. There's no such thing. What defines a church? Is it just a bunch of people getting together for a Bible study? No, there is, and I have a whole course on ecclesiology. And by the way, we have full-blown theology courses at searchthescriptures.org, and a number of homeschoolers have taken courses like bibliology or ecclesiology or Christology as elective credits. They're taught on a master's level. Um, but nonetheless, a church is a group, a body of believers that is structured with elders and deacons uh, that practice the ordinances, at least the Lord's table, in biblical baptism, and they're engaged for the glory of God in the Great Commission and in the process of not just reaching people locally but the world. So there's some parameters and some definitions to what makes a church a church. Now, some pastors are afraid to teach on homeschooling. Why? Well, because they can't do it. Why can't they do it? Because their wives work outside of the home. And that's a whole other issue altogether. Does God call a woman to be a worker at home? Yes, he does. And my hat is off to any woman who has to help put food on the table. But listen, God calls a woman to be a worker at home. And many times we grow largely by conversion, this church. The majority of people who join every year don't come as believers, but as new Christians. And so very often they are entrenched in a worldview that is so different. Both parents work. They're in the government school system. I was thrilled. Uh, six months ago, a couple came up to me. They both had been working, came to Christ two years ago, and they said, Pastor, we're just thrilled. We sought God. We had a three-year goal to bring my wife home so we could get them out of that sewer system because the government school is so horrendous and the things that they were learning, but we did it by the grace of God in two years. So we're patient, and we never want to communicate an attitude that a home educator is superior and that people who are in public school systems are dirty. That kind of attitude is discouraging to a pastor and to what God has called a local assembly to do. But some pastors, their wives work so they can't, or they're afraid to offend people who have their children in public education. Listen. You know, if Josh McDowell is right, and his numbers are about the same as Barna, he says 78%, Barna says 81%, then 81% of evangelical kids walk away from the faith. Now, understand, they were never converted. You can't walk away from conversion when it's real. But when 80% of evangelicals are walking away from the faith, there's a reason. Because someone else, something else is capturing their heart. Okay, the next question. Kelly from Richmond Hill, Georgia, says, I'm already homeschooling, but am unsure that I am doing enough. How do you know what enough looks like, Audrey? Well, I think, again, this with, um, with moms, we always feel that way anyway, that we're never doing enough. But the simple answer is you just keep things simple. You keep it simple, sweetheart. I love that kiss motto. And you don't put unrealistic expectations on yourself because I think that's what we often do is we think, oh, it's supposed to look like this or we're comparing ourselves to someone else. And the biggest thing is to keep it simple. And even as Carl shared earlier, you, uh, you, you, um, 
choose your curriculum. You get with somebody to choose your curriculum. If you have a good scope and sequence that can help you with that. And then as you walk with the Lord moment by moment and you commit your way to him, then he's going to help you. And he's going to help you understand that um, if you're doing what you can each day, it's going to be enough. You just walk with the Lord and it will be enough. So that's just a, a worry issue more than anything. Let me take the next one. Denise asks, how do I choose a curriculum to make my child competitive for college? Well, we encourage as you move into the high school years, most states have what they call a dual enrollment program. When your child is in 10th or 11th or 12th, some states 11th and 12th only, you can take courses at the local college level in most states for free. And what that does is two things. Number one, it substantiates the grades that you're giving your children. So if they're getting a bunch of A's and they get an F, the local university doesn't look good. Um, so it really substantiates that you're doing a good job with your children on that final transcript. And on a transcript, of course, it's just ninth through 12th grades. Those are the only grades that count, so to speak. And so, too, sometimes there's a subject that you don't want to teach, don't feel equipped to. Of course, some people often ask us, what about calculus? Only 10% of the students in America take calculus to begin with. So you can dismiss that. The SAT... Um, grade you on two things, really algebra one and two and geometry. Those are the three math areas that you need to focus well in. And then, of course, in English. Um, but if your child is inclined to take calculus, you can do it at a local level. When we homeschooled, there are virtually no tools available to us. We're just totally on our own. Now there are entire courses, tutors and the Internet. Parents get together, someone has a skill in math, they can teach it, etc. But you can make your child competitive and you can save a lot of money. A lot of home educators, we see them graduate from Community Bible Church Christian Academy with either a semester or sometimes an entire year behind them. So college is now not a four-year experience, but a three-year. Audrey Krista from Illinois asks, how do you maintain the attention and keep the day interesting for young children, and how do parents effectively homeschool multiple age groups? Well, I know when our children were growing up, um, I really implemented what is typically typically called like a, um, a unit study and um, and of course for their math skills and for uh, certain things I had them using the workbooks and for their particular grade level but for everything else you know with history and, and science and um, language arts we did that together and we did it around our kitchen table and then I would focus on in fact I still have some of the the projects that we did and you can definitely see oh this child was in you know second grade and this child I was in fourth grade and this child was in sixth grade because you can even see and I'm thinking in particularly of when we did a whole unit study on the state of South Carolina and they made their um, they made their projects from that and but we were all working on the same thing and what's really great about that is the older um, children get very involved and they help the younger ones I see this in my grandchildren's lives and my my daughter and my daughters-in-law and the way that they homeschool their ch- multiple ages of their children and they're able to um, 
um, do it that way. Um, and then, of course, the question uh, with young children, you have babies. I had babies at the same time. I Lots of things. I would time it depending on uh, what the year was like and the ages of the children. I would time things during naps. I would time things when um, if I had a baby, I would have interesting toys that I didn't normally let them play with, and I pulled them out during this particular time so that they were brand new. I also kept um, these uh, shape blocks on my bar. I still have them. The grandchildren still use them, but I kept them in a certain place. I didn't let them go all over the house, and then that became a special thing that you're going to work on this and play with this while we're accomplishing this. There's so many creative ways to keep um, little hands active and minds busy if they just don't have the run of everything, if you're able to set aside things that are used for special times. And of course, when you have a baby that's getting into everything, nothing wrong with putting them in a playpen or a play yard so that they're safe and they have interesting things to do while you can focus on some things with your other children. But the biggest thing is to have a a, a mindset, a perspective that this is school at home. This is not um, trying to copy all the time what they do in the public education or in or in um, you know conventional schooling because they're it's all the children are the same age and they're in the same classroom and it's almost like a herd mentality. You have to get past thinking I'm going to accomplish the educational goals, but I my, but I'm doing this at home. So therefore, um, I'm, my my um, my schooling is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to accomplish the same things in terms of them learning what they need to learn at every grade level grade level, but sometimes it's going to look different. There's all kinds of creative ways to do it. And instead of uh, a mom getting super frustrated over it, just it's just like you have to take a step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, I have these ages of my children. How am I going to get this accomplished? And ask the Lord to help you with that and then do some of those practical things that I just suggested. And then there's also the thing too of, of you know, when you have old, your children get a little older, there's a lot of independent work they can do. And so you get them busy on on whatever it is while you're tending to uh, the needs of the baby at the moment. And sometimes with my children, they sometimes I would say, if you get stuck, you just if you get stuck, you can stop that and and read. I would give them several things. You, if you get stuck, because I'll come back and I'm going to help you with this. But right now I got to go change the baby's diaper or whatever it is. But you have that have a plan with that, um, and it's just really the practical ingenuity that we have as moms, rather than getting super frustrated over it. Just having a perspective of how to get this accomplished. David asks, uh, Do you think everyone has the time, resources, education to homeschool? Do you believe that for some people it can be a bad fit? Well, let me just say most states require a minimum high school diploma or a GED equivalent. So if you can't meet that criteria, then legally you can homeschool. But do you have to have a Ph.D. or a college degree to homeschool? Certainly not. And again, uh, you're going to learn the subjects that are required through high school. And you may learn those subjects with the child along the way. Is homeschooling a bad fit for some? I suppose so, occasionally. You do have some abusive parent, and that wouldn't be a healthy situation for a child. Um, so maybe a Christian education in a local Christian school would be a better alternative than the public school. Um, this is a similar question, the one you answered. Uh, this lady, Melanie, asked from North Carolina, my son is 12, we have two girls, and 
twin four-year-old boys, I'm worried the 12-year-old doesn't have anyone his age and gender to relate to as a boy. Is that a just concern? Well, I would, uh, first of all, make sure that your husband, that his dad is, that that's relationship is good and that he's, because it takes men to forge manhood. And as he's 12 years old, there may be ways that um, the dad could be more involved in his life so that they form a really strong bond, things they can do, dad and son, and, and how the dad can help him with skills and things that he needs to do as he's um, crossing over into manhood. But then there's also the very important part that we have as women in the lives of our boys is to encourage them in their masculinity, to encourage them in their manhood, and to talk to them about that they're going to be, God's made them to be leaders and to be providers and protectors for their families, and we show them a lot of respect as we tell them those things. Now, it's hard for us sometimes as moms, because we're always correcting them, telling them what to do, but as they're getting to that age of 12, where they're uh, the adolescent and they're becoming teenagers, we need to start really talking talking to them even more, and we should be doing it when they're little boys, talking about how God's made them to be, that they'll grow up to be a man, and um, and that we show a lot of respect. I've, I personally believe that is just really key, especially in this climate in which we live, where there's all this talk about toxic masculinity, and men look down on, or are portrayed as being stupid and dumb, and women are better, and they know more, and all those kinds of things. It's even more important for believing women to be building into the lives of boys in a healthy way that encourages their masculinity. So I would encourage you, again, with a father-son relationship with him. And then also, you said in that that you, that you have... Um, twin boys who are four. So, and then you have a little girl who's younger. So you talk to him too about his place in the family. You know, that he's firstborn and, and that, you know, God wants to use him. You don't overload him with that where he feels like this tremendous pressure, but that, you know, uh, God will use him in the lives of his little brothers to show them what boyhood is like, to show them what manhood is like. And, and you help him in that way. And then he takes on and sees that God wants to use me in the lives of my little sister. I need to, I need to defend her and protect her, and I need to be a good example for my little brothers. And you build him up in that way, um, rather than sometimes I tell moms, it just in general, that we're so good at correcting our children, and we're so good at seeing what they do wrong and telling them a thing or two, but we need to put even more emphasis on the praiseworthy things in their lives and building them up and encouraging them, because that's what the Bible says we are to do, to encourage one another, and we need to take that admonition even in the lives of our children. Now, one final thing with that, because I've just been talking about within the family with a 12-year-old boy, but um, if you're involved in a really good, healthy church, you point out good, godly men in that church that, whoa, that man is really great, or he's, do you see what what a great thing he did, or whatever, then you then you have, if you have good, some good um, friendships with families within the church, there may be some other boys that are your boy's age that would be good friendships, so you can pray about those those things as well. But don't think he has to have that necessarily. Um, but the Lord may certainly want to develop that. There may be other older teenagers that you can point out that he can look up to. But I wouldn't overly consume, concern myself with that. The biggest thing I would do is encourage him in his, in his masculinity as a young man. 
Audrey, is there a book that you would recommend for someone who wants to explore uh, the possibility of homeschooling? Well, the one I mentioned when I made my statement, um, Home Style Teaching by Raymond and Dorothy Moore, is still hands down my favorite book of all time about homeschooling. And there's been so many written since we started. And probably some of them, had I read them back then, I might not have taken on the job because I might have felt like I couldn't do it. But But his book is... It was revolutionary in my life. This person asks, can the curriculum be monitored or supported by an external qualified teacher? You can do whatever you want. You're the principal of your school. And yes, certainly utilize uh, people who want to help you, who will encourage you. And again, there's all kinds of online courses and teachers and opportunities that are now available um, that weren't available many, many years ago. Um, someone from Virginia Beach asked, what's the best way to start looking into how to homeschool for parents who are still several years away from doing so? Well, I would encourage you to start reading. Just start reading, you know, really good books. Um, and the one that I just mentioned, there's also another book. It's not a curriculum, but it's a book called uh, The Three R's by Dr. Ruth Beachick. I would encourage you to read that because when you're, your children are very little, the, the years are going to come so fast you won't even believe it. Because I still remember the very first time I heard about homeschooling, my oldest son was six months old. And I remember at that time thinking, oh, schooling's so far away. I don't have to think about that right now. And then I blinked my eyes and we were enrolling him in kindergarten and really hadn't given much thought to homeschooling. I hardly even remembered um, that much about it. Hadn't really thought about it at that time. It wasn't until there were some things going on while he was in kindergarten. So you read. You read and you talk to people who are homeschooling, but don't always listen to the naysayers out there because there are tons of naysayers out there who will discourage you and they'll bring up all the negatives um, about homeschooling, uh, just a thousand and one negatives that they will bring up um, to you. So you don't listen to that. You, you, it's better to read books like, again, I'll say homestyle teaching. Just get it. Find it out of, you know, find it on eBay, get it and read it. This is similar. I can answer this. There are so many Christian naysayers when it comes to homeschooling. <laughs> What do you say to people like that? Even my parents say this, knowing full well the evil of the public school. But they're so against me homeschooling. Listen, you leave father and mother. You honor them your whole life. But a new family is started. And someone from the in-laws or your parents or whoever should not be running your family. God has given you a head. He's your husband. And he needs to lead and he needs to say, hey, dad, mom, or whatever you call your in-laws, this is our decision and we don't need you to interfere with it. This is what God has led us to do, period. You've got to man up. And this is, again, why it's essential that you be in a healthy church where a pastor is teaching in the family. Uh, we have people some Sundays who live stream from all 50 states. Uh, last Sunday, just 35 states, some Sundays, five countries, some Sundays, 15 foreign countries. And and I get a lot of response and people say, you know, I'm in a town where there's not a healthy church. Well, it's no excuse for not being involved in the best church you can find. But then supplement um, maybe your experience in that church. If you don't have a pastor who's verse by verse teaching the Bible and go online and 
do that with your children. One question wanted to know, are there some non-negotiables I should teach my children in the realm of theology? And the answer is yes. It's what I call basic discipleship. Uh, we've had it in this church for 30 years so that when someone becomes a Christian, the week they can become a Christian, we send them to the new Christians class. It's 45 weeks long. They could start at week 20, go weeks 20 to 45, 1 to 19, and get the whole thing. As it turns out, we are teaching it now with the virus. On Wednesday night, we just had our first session on Wednesday night. You can go online. It's called Basic Discipleship. Listen to the first message. And so when your child leaves high school, what critical, non-negotiable, theological truths do they need to know and understand and apply? It's what we teach in the Basic Discipleship course. Um, Here's another question for you, Audrey. This comes from Maine. Susan from Maine asks, how can I inspire temporary parent homeschoolers during this pandemic to continue homeschooling uh, once they have the opportunity to go back to the public school? How can I help them to do this? Well, hopefully that they, hopefully they're the kind of parents who are asking you those questions because you certainly don't want to, um, go and meddle in their lives. But if they see you as a homeschooler and a mentor, a, a mentor type figure, then, um, then you just encourage them from what they've already done. Look what you already did. Look what you, how your children have already, um, X, Y, and Z, whatever it is they've done and see, see you made it work and you can do this if this is something that you want to continue. But, um, um, you know, and I don't know. Did, did, did she use the word mentor in that? Um, what was that? How did she ask that question in the uh, beginning? Let's see. Make sure I handled um, it correctly. Um, Couldn't remember. Well, uh, you're, you're, he's already lost the question. <laughs> I know. But I would I know. just say this: watch. Tell your friends to watch this video. <laughs> yeah. It will be posted at communitybiblechurch.us. It will be on YouTube. It will be at searchthescriptures.org, my radio ministry. It will be on uh, Apple. Uh, Roku. So there's a lot of uh, on our uh, a lot of places in which you can watch it. Our Facebook page. Uh, so get educated, find out. And again, a lot of parents have no clue, no clue, of what is really being taught in the public school that they think is fantastic for their kids. Someone is capturing their heart, and it's not the Lord. Uh, what are your recommendations for homeschool programs uh, that are not aligned with the Bible? I probably wouldn't do them. Though I would say that um, math and English are generally generic, though there are Christian publishers that might put a Christian spin on the illustrations and other things, but math is math. English grammar is English grammar. But the great thing is, is that like when you choose a science curriculum, you're going to teach them both sides of it. See, kids in the public school get a one-sided education. They learn evolution. They don't ever get to hear the scientific evidence for the creation model. So they don't really get an education. They get indoctrinated. And so a good homeschool curriculum, again, this is where you speak to people. I think we've got time for one more. Um, let's see. There's just so many. Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, well, let's go to this one from Texas. Uh, how do you homeschool while working? I'm a teacher. How do you set up as a teacher for homeschool working parents? Hmm. She needs to come home. 
That that would be your goal. That would be your goal. And it would to depend, get home. Some of that would be too dependent on how how old your children are That's true. and how you can manage that. I mean, I've I've known I've known a, a people who the mom has worked, but her schedule has been such that, like I know one family, they were both doctors, and but but because it was their practice and they were both there, the children came and she they she was able to homeschool and she was able to do it and she and she wasn't giving up the care of her children or the homeschooling responsibilities or anything. She just made it work. Got a and little so, table set up in the office. I'll go work on this patient. Come back. How are you doing? <laughs> you know, and it happened. We've even seen single mothers sometimes have the kind of career where they can, uh, you know, and they're the new poor, so many of them. Uh, but they have, sometimes God can give you inventive ways that you've never, ever imagined. There's all kinds of creative ways. And, but yeah, but sometimes if it's the type of thing where your kids are unattended, that's a whole other story. You need to come home. Well, our time is out. Again, this will be posted at communitybiblechurch.us. And so I know there are people in other time zones that couldn't tune in. The folks in California, though a number are with us from California tonight, but not everyone could. So it will be posted and you can send it to your friends and maybe even those parents or grandparents who are giving you such a hassle and say, Dad, Mom, will you at least watch this so you can understand why we've made this decision? Look, God has given you stewardship over your children. And I'd rather have my children to be total ignoramuses to go to heaven with me than to be some of the brightest children in the world and to spend an eternity in hell. This life is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. And God's given you a vapor of a vapor, generally 18 years, to in a very concerted way to invest in the lives of your children. You don't want to miss it. Is it easy? No, it's a challenge, but it's a blessing. Nothing that's meaningful is ever easy. But if God wants you to do it, he'll give you the grace and he'll sustain you. Now, our Father, we thank you tonight for allowing us the opportunity another year to share some of the thoughts and the things that you've shown us. And we pray for the hundred, possibly thousands of families that will watch this video who are at the point of decision. You said if we would commit our way to you, that you would make our paths straight. You said a man plans his ways, but you're able to direct our steps. So help the dads, the moms together under the leadership of dad to make good, godly decisions. We've reached a point in our nation, Father, a time in our world Days that you said would eventually come. And they are all around us. You said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, days of immorality and violence. And the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion. Those are our days. You said at the end of time you would gather Israel back into the land. All these things have come into place. Help us not to be blind. Help us to realize that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces that are working behind people. I pray for this professor from Harvard who wrote this scathing, untrue, unresearched, false article about home education. 
I pray that somehow you'd reach her heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that she would find forgiveness as well. I pray for someone who's tuned in, who has never found forgiveness. They're not sure if heaven is their home. Speak that to them tonight. Help them to go to my website and listen to, would you like to know God as your friend? Help them, Father, to see that salvation is paid for, it's not earned, but that Jesus, through his death on a cross and by his resurrection, paid in full their sin debt, and if they would humble themselves and call upon him, that he would save them. Help someone tonight to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And we ask it, our Father, in Jesus' holy name, amen. Again, thank you so much for being with us. And if you have unanswered questions in the spiritual realm of what it means to be a Christian, I invite you to tune in Sunday night, 5.30 Eastern Standard Time, when I do a presentation that I do two or three times a month on what it really means to be a true Christian. God bless you.